and and I think also a willingness to learn from people or sources that are that don't align with your values or that are evil. But you know, you can learn things if you are willing to from I would say quote unquote bad people if if you're willing to separate the person and their behavior from the thing that they're showing you or the thing that they're they're teaching you. And maybe you're learning from the bad behavior or maybe you're learning from that nugget, you know, of of truth or of inspiration or interestingness amidst a whole bunch of, of Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part one of our Intellectual Humility mini-series with Shane Snow. Shane, can you tell us a little bit about what this mini-series is going to cover? So this is an exploration of intellectual humility, which is the topic of a new book that I have coming out. So this is going to be a, a sneak preview for everyone of some of the things that I'm going to be exploring in the book. And it builds off of some of what we talked about in the, the most recent series that we did together uh, on Smart Cuts and my work with Dream Teams. It's uh, the idea that businesses, people, and societies all need to adapt if they want to survive and get better. And intellectual humility is this rather underappreciated virtue that makes a difference for great leaders, great businesses, great people who are constantly getting better. And and so that's that's the topic. And you know, in this episode we're going to break down what exactly that is, why it's important. But in this series, we're going to really dive into the art and science of changing your mind when it's smart to and holding true when that's smart to. And that's what intellectual humility is all about. I love it. Well, what I'm really excited for our listeners is that you have generously offered to let people have some sneak peeks and some previews of this stuff. So uh, if you guys want to get on Shane's extra special mailing list <laughs> and, and find out about the book and find out about some stuff before it even comes out, Go to his website, shanesnow.com, and go shanesnow.com slash slash IH, like intellectual humility. And uh, he's agreed to send you guys some some advanced things over time here as, as the book gets closer and closer to coming out. So what are we going to cover in episode one today? So today I want to talk about the power of intellectual humility and also why it's urgent. Why this isn't just a nice thing, oh great, being able to be humble and change your mind when you need to, but it's actually something that is desperately needed in society, but also in business. And and I want to kind of break down what intellectually intellectual humility actually consists of so that we can start to wrap our heads around it as more of concrete things. Uh, that we can do to be better people, to be smarter, not just, uh, you know, people think about humility as maybe being, you know, quiet and respectful, that there's a lot more to intellectual humility than that and how, how it makes us not just smart, but it's something that's truly urgent for our world right now. Can you talk about this idea that everything breaks and, and what entropy is then? Sure. So that, that's where this all starts, actually, is if you look at physics or science or biology, all of these things that have to do with the real world. There's this principle called entropy, which is that things slowly break down. Entropy is a scientific concept that basically says that over time, anything that's a system, so say like an ecosystem, like a rainforest or a human body or a relationship between two people, over time, that system will eventually erode. 
we get older, our bodies break down, we have, you know, a mountain gets erosion. Mountains don't just grow when they sit there, right? Uh, so that's what entropy is. It's this principle in physics and biology, and, and I think also sociology, everything slowly erodes or breaks down over time. And unless you add something to that system. So this is, uh, entropy is this basically decline into disorder um, if you change nothing. So there's only one combination of sand particles that looks like the sandcastle that you built on the beach. So the chances that it will still be around in a week is, is very low. It doesn't just happen naturally. So if you want to keep the sandcastle alive, you need to keep adding to it. And it's the same thing in the real world. So in geography, we have erosion, you know, a, a land mass needs to have more volcanic activity or more glaciers moving around, more, you know, stuff blowing in with the wind in order for it to not just erode away into nothing. An organism needs food added to it, and it needs to be able to add new skills in order to survive. Over time, that's how we all survived. And humans are the same way. We need exercise. If we don't exercise, we don't add things to our state, then we'll break down over time if we don't eat. If we don't learn, when new things come, new problems approach us, we need to adapt to those. We need to add to our being or we won't survive. And the same thing's true with groups. If you don't inject new people or new ideas into a group, eventually a group will start to conform more and more. And that makes the group more vulnerable to attack, to breaking down, to some other group taking over. And I think for you know what you talk about in uh, innovation and leadership, it's also true with businesses. Statistically speaking, most businesses stop growing after a few years unless they change something. Most startup companies, if they don't pivot within the first couple of years, will fail. Most successful startups that end up going public or being acquired for a lot of money have one to two major pivots in their first couple of years. They have to change, evolve, adapt. At the very least, they have to hire new people. They need new blood injected into the business or they will stop growing. And eventually a business that's not growing will slowly have its market share taken away from it, its customers taken away from it. You know, customers don't last forever. Generally some, some will, but, but over time your business will erode if you don't stop, if you stop adding new things to it, injecting newness into it. So that's, that's kind of the, the vague concept. And, uh, you know, the details are what matter, you know, the people you inject, the ideas you inject, you know, if we're talking about back in geography, it's not that any new thing will make the landmass better. You know, you need things to, to work together in the right ways in order to survive. But that concept itself, you leave things alone, they're going to degrade. That's what entropy is. And that's the starting point for for this idea of intellectual humility, we need to be open to adding new things if we want to have our business to survive, if we want to get better as people and in our relationships. So that's that's the primary thing. When you say everything breaks, that's my short way of saying don't get lazy or don't get complacent just because things aren't broken now because they will break. And so, you know, the, we, we'll talk later about all of the good excuses why intellectual humility and the mindset that it breeds can really help you to accelerate your success in business and your relationships in life. But the other side of it is there is this urgency if we don't make ourselves open to adding to what we have, then we will eventually break and get disrupted. You know, one of the quotes that came to mind as you were saying that, I, I, I think it's Theodore Roosevelt said, we all must either wear out or rust out. My choice is to wear out. And, I like that. Yeah. You know, this idea that we have this wishful thinking, I think sometimes of like, I just want to work and then I want it to be fine forever afterwards, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's so rarely like that. I mean, you're, you've become an incredibly successful author, but there are so few books that are perennial sellers that are selling more 
after the author dies that are selling more 10 years ago, 10 years after they came out than they did the day they were sold. You know, that's, that's so uncommon, right? And yet yep. so valuable if you, if you can have one like that. Or I think about every time that I'm like annoyed that I have to work hard to build the business, you know, or to do this thing I don't want to do. <laughs> and that a quote like that is like, oh yeah, I don't have to do this. I can sit here, but I will rust out if I just sit here, you know? So yeah. I may as well get you, it. You might, you might remember the chapter in, in Smart Cuts about depressed billionaires, that it's this phenomenon that so many people, once they, they become a billionaire or so rich that they don't have to work anymore, will get depressed unless they start making progress on other things. Like if they're not, you know, to use kind of the language I was using before, injecting new things into their lives, new challenges, whatever it is, if they're not growing, they start to get depressed. And, you know, that's kind of the rusting out thing, right? And it's, it's different than, you know, when, when we're using this analogy, it kind of breaks down of, you know, injecting something new into the ecosystem. It's different than buying more boats if you have a billion dollars. That is not the cure to depression. It's actually the injecting new progress into your life, you know, new things that force you to grow or, or allow you to grow. You know, a lot of billionaires that or these people that you get depressed because they don't need to work anymore. The thing that helps them to be not depressed is like learning the guitar or learning to paint or anything that that helps them grow. And I, I think the uh, the wear out or rust out, I, I'm glad you brought that up. It, it makes me think of, honestly, my grandfather, who's 90, he just turned 91. And he, at age 70 something, decided to pick up the piano because he was bored. He was retired and he was bored. And then a couple of years after that, he picked up Tai Chi and, and now he's painting, he paints landscapes. And he, I mean, he disproves this thing that you can only learn piano when you're a child, right? But also he's found that the cure to his, you know, his being uh, kind of like bored and, you know, and sort of a lonely, he lives by himself and, and he's a little lonely, but the cure to that for him has been to learn and to grow. And he would rather walk every day in the mountains of Maine where he lives and, you know, paint and play his piano and do his Tai Chi until he, he passes on to the next life, then sit there and slowly, you know, kind of waste away. And, and he has the health that he can do that. But, uh, but a person, an older person like that, old, you could say, <laughs> a 91 year old li living alone like that would certainly, I think, rust away pretty quickly if they didn't have things to, to make progress on. And I think he's such a cool example because I, I love him. But that's how we all are. Whether you're 35 or 91, we, we will rust away if we're not, not working working on things. And so what if it wears us out, right? And that's, you know, we're all going to die anyway. At some point, our businesses will all get gobbled up or, you know, hundred years from now, your business just will, will probably not exist. I mean, it'd be crazy if it did, but it won't look like it does today, right? It'll have to evolve and, you know, that's going to happen. And so may as well work to keep it changing and transforming rather than let it, you know, erode away as a cash cow. You know, I think one of the reasons I've been excited about this miniseries ever since you, you suggested the idea is, well, I guess an example would be la last week on the show, we had Brad Felt. He was one that started up Techstars. You know, they've done like 800 investments there. His own investment fund, they've raised two and a half billion dollars. He's invested all these startups over the years, right? And he made this comment that, you know, with my ADHD and always wanting to change things, I really liked. But he said, in his in his observation, the companies that say, this is it, now we just need to sell it, never do as well as the companies that are constantly learning from their customers, constantly observing, constantly willing to consider being wrong. This He, he just talked about this like unfair advantage, what I'm going to call intellectual humility, but this, this like continuing to react, 
you know, never telling themselves they know it all. This theme of just like, in some ways, it's depressing to think that you'll never be done. And in other ways, it's kind of fun to like embrace a lifelong journey kind of an idea. Yes. And, and to me, I just have lost so much money claiming I knew how everything was, or even when things were changing, you know, thinking ideas were so great because I was the one who thought them up instead of bringing the intellectual humility <laughs> to rec- to really like objectively observe whether there's any support yep. for my idea or if I just like it a lot and fell in love with my own drinking my own Kool-Aid. Anyways. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's a, a connection to, I think something that, that a lot of folks listening to this will probably, probably know a lot about or have heard a lot about, which is this idea of a growth mindset, right. And being growth oriented. And there's something about intellectual humility that is, it's a shade different than that, or it's, it's something a little deeper than just the growth thing that knowing that you can't stay still if you want to keep growing. And it's this idea of upgrading what you think and actually admitting that what you used to think might not be the case tomorrow. You know, that what got you here won't necessarily get you there. It's different than, than, you know, keep climbing, keep growing, right? It's actually undermining your own past thinking or being willing to, you know, there's some things that won't change. There's some principles, right? That that are not going to change anytime soon. You know, the principle of, of gravity, you know, as we experience it, isn't going away anytime soon. But if you think about, you know, the history of physics, what Einstein discovered is that gravity isn't quite what it seems to be, right? Relativity is is the higher principle to gravity, or it's, you know, the instead of the sun revolving around the earth, earth revolves around the sun. Being willing to do that with your own beliefs and your own ideas around your business or around the way the world works. That ends up being something far more powerful than than just believing that you can grow and keep going. It's believing that it's not only okay to have been wrong and to uh, upgrade your thinking, but actually that it's a strength. It's not a weakness to have been wrong in the past. It's a strength to have been wrong in the past because now you have leveled up. Well, this is why I think that you are such a great person to write this book. And I know we talked about this when we were you know, coming up with the whole idea for the miniseries here. But – I'm I'm interested, you know, successful journalist, su- super successful author and keynote speaker, and your your tech company is wildly successful from objective standards. If anybody hasn't been to Contently, go check that out. But you have such a genuine curiosity, and, and I'm interested in how you've cultivated in that, including a you have not just most of us have an allergic reaction to finding out that we're wrong, and for you, you have cultivated this what I think is some level of curiosity of, I don't know, it's, it's like maybe the rest of us judge ourselves that if we got something wrong, then that means we must be less valuable as a human or less important or something. And you somehow haven't like bought into that. And as a result, it seems like a competitive advantage for you. Give me your reaction. Yeah, that's, that's nice of you to say. I, I would say that, you know, it's more of a struggle on the inside, you know, to really do that than, uh, than it might appear. And I think that I have part of my fascination with this topic comes from having held on to, you know, some of my early businesses that I, I started as a young entrepreneur, I held on too long to things because I was worried about what people would think, you know, if I admitted that it wasn't going to work, I wanted it to work so that I could be validated, I could be validated, not the business, but I, right. And so I, I think that's a natural part of being a human. It's something that I am certainly not immune to. But I've, uh, so, so I will say it's not that my natural state, is not to, you know, to be willing to tell everyone that I was wrong, right? My natural state is to want to be right. Just like all of us, nobody wants to be wrong. 
but I've found it very liberating. And I think this is a function of being a journalist and taking a journalist kind of mindset to building business and to exploring, you know, and it, it ties in, I think, with what a lot of like lean startup advocates, you know, are all about, which is this, it doesn't matter what the right answer is as long as we find it. But, you know, I've used, I think in my career, journalism as an excuse to say, I don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to ask you. I don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to search all these places and connect dots. And, and I think just framing that as like, oh, I'm just doing my job. My job is to find out. My job is not to be right, it's to figure it out. You know, that I think has helped me with this. But I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things, and we'll get into this in this series, one of the things that's hard about this idea of intellectual humility is you can be great at it in certain areas of your life and not realize just how bad you are at it in other areas of your life. So my dad's an engineer. He works in nuclear engineering. His job in many ways is life or death. He's, his job for many years was for nuclear waste to be put in so that if they fell on a pit of spikes and were run over by you know a train that they did not crack open and you know and get everyone radiation poisoning. So that was my dad's job. So you better believe that on matters of engineering containers for nuclear fuel, he is incredibly open to changing his mind about things, to being wrong about things that he tries. You know, like this material doesn't work. It We drop the canister on the bed of spikes and it cracks open. Better do something else. But, you know, there's areas of my... And every parent is like this. You know, I was their first kid. There's areas that, you know, as a parent, it took him a long time to evolve and to do things differently with my siblings than he did with me. And, you know, we talk about some of these things and, you know, the feedback loop, I guess, or the the cycle of upgrading himself in the area of, you know, of being a, a parent and, and figuring out how to raise kids or what's the right thing to do, you know, took longer than it would take in his engineering job. And so, you know, that's to say that we all have blind spots. I may be in these matters of, you know, psychology and, you know, business and human behavior and these things that I write about and that I work on. I might have an easier time saying, you know, I was wrong about that thing last year. Now I'm right about it because of my job or because, you know, it's just an area that I'm comfortable with. But there's things that I just believe about the world that that might actually be more viscerally hard to let go of in my life or in my relationships or, or just topics that I believe that I'm right about. One of the things that actually is, is totally a mind bender with this topic is this, what if I'm wrong about it? Okay. To be wrong like that, that's, that just gets into a whole other territory, you know, and, and actually what I say to that is that there's probably areas where, you know, not all advice applies to everything, but anyway, long story short is that I think that part of what's made this such an interesting thing that for me is that as a journalist and as an entrepreneur, ideally you're trying to find the truth, whatever it is, and to keep climbing and to keep upgrading your knowledge. And there's permission. I think this is one of the cool things about, I, I'd say like the technology startup culture in particular, there's permission to fail. It's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. You know, as a journalist, it's okay to not get the whole story as long as you eventually get the whole story, or it's okay for next year to you to learn something that, that you didn't know before, as long as you correct the record. And, you know, not every, every area of life is like that, but, but for me, that's helped me. And it does, you know, it does translate to other areas of my life. I find myself saying to my wife all the time, I could be wrong before I I say something that I feel strongly about and that lets a little pressure out of the balloon, right? Like when there's something we disagree on and it's actually something that I think she does really well. It's a habit that we work on together. It makes any argument about things that we're not sure about, but we want to win a lot less intense because we both admit that it's okay 
if you're wrong. And, and I think that that itself is, is the thing that I really think is the good habit is just giving everyone permission to be okay with being wrong, no matter what it is, even if it's an area where you're pretty sure you're not wrong. I mean, I'm totally, totally monologuing on this point, but, but I would say that there's a connection between just practicing this intellectual humility in one area and being able to be open to be more intellectually humble in other areas, even if it takes you longer. You know, it makes me think the, the only mentor that I had that was younger than me, it's a guy who used to be my boss, Mitch Warner at the Arbinger Institute. If people haven't read the books like Leadership and Self-Deception, they really should. Outward Mindset, Arbinger Institute, they've got a book, Bonds That Make Us Free. Anyways, I'm a huge fan, right? Ended up going to work for them. They're great. And he, in so many areas, like you could criticize him or people could criticize him. And he just did not get his back up. He was so willing to listen to your criticism of him, which might have even been a little bit mean-spirited or have a little bit of a bite to it, right? He was so willing to listen to that, and he was looking for the kernel of truth within what is probably a bunch of BS, but there's like maybe there's a kernel of truth within that. He was like very open to being wrong without taking it as a judgment of himself. But, but the other thing that I really learned from him is he was – not only did he not treat it as a personal attack, like he saw it as it was more about them than it was about him, you know, the bite and stuff. So he could listen through the smoke and hear the heart of the issue. But he, he also didn't just accept it. Like he was very open and curious. Like you, somebody would start giving him the gears about something and he'd be like, oh, really? Tell me more about that. Where most people would have gotten defensive, right? And then they soften because he's not resisting them. And yeah. then they do tell him more and he does discover yeah. something. And when the conversation is over, he was very mentally strong and would be willing to be like, yeah, I don't agree with him at all. <laughs> and like would throw the That's whole great. conversation out potentially. Like he was, he was so willing to take their, he was so willing to consider anything they said, but also mentally strong enough to sort through, well, that's their problem. That's not our problem. Or this, you know, or we do need to do this and we don't need to do that. And it was just fascinating to, to not, to be able to kind of, uh, restrain his emotional responses and and kind of choose reason and wisdom when it was so yeah. such a potential tar baby so this this gets at something that that maybe we can spell out a little bit for listeners he seems, sounds like a great example of the true definition of intellectual humility which is actually i guess the way that i define it and philosophers have different variations on this but it's not just a willingness to change it's intellectual humility is being able to sit in between being too stubborn to never change and being so willing to change that you're gullible being intellectually humble is in the middle there and that's why it's a virtue is it uh, it requires the discernment and the wisdom to take things in and then to decide what's worth taking action on what's worth adapting for what's worth changing for so it's it's more nuanced than just saying i'll listen to anything i'll believe the next thing that i hear that's really hard what it sounds like you know uh, your your old boss is able to do really effectively is that depersonalization and discernment thing so there's there's actually and we'll talk about this throughout the series there's a whole bunch of downstream skills that people with a lot of intellectual humility develop. And, uh, and those are things like discernment, being able to filter critiques or, you know, not everyone in the world is going to come at you with, with information in a way that, that doesn't hurt you personally. So being able to separate that out, it's things like forgiveness and second chances and mercy. And, and I think also a willingness to 
learn from people or sources that are that don't align with your values or that are evil. But you know, you can learn things if you are willing to from I would say, quote unquote, bad people, if if you're willing to separate the person and their behavior from the thing that they're showing you or the thing that they're they're teaching you. And maybe you're learning from the bad behavior or maybe you're learning from that nugget, you know, of, of truth or of inspiration or interestingness amidst a whole bunch of, of BS. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, that I want to talk about throughout this series. But, you know, further on that definition of intellectual humility, this sitting in the middle between so stubborn, you never change your mind and so gullible that you always change your mind. There are four sub components to this idea of being intellectually humble. The first is respect for other viewpoints to the point that you're willing to listen to them, explore them before you cast judgment. You might already have an idea, you know, of whether or not something is, is, you know, good or bad or right or wrong, but being willing to explore it to take off your your judgment hat you know or your political hat or your even your moral hat you know you need your moral hat later for uh, to be a filter but taking off that hat while you listen that's the first component second component is taking ego out of the equation separating your ego from your intellect so being willing to do what it sounds like your old boss could do which is make things not personal when you're exploring ideas so the earth revolving around the sun or the sun revolving around the earth if that's personal it's going to be a lot harder for you to you know to figure out the truth than if you it's not about you it's about the earth and the sun right it's about science the third thing is letting go of overconfidence, which is something we explored a lot in the Smart Cut series, but we'll, we'll return to. But this idea that the better we are at things, the more we learn, the more confident we, we become, we have to, to let go of overconfidence and, and strike that balance between confidence and overconfidence. And all of that adds up to this willingness to revise your viewpoints, to rethink what you used to think. But without those other three, it doesn't happen. So that's the definition of intellectual humility. And, uh, and like I said, it can lead to all of these downstream effects. I think most importantly is adaptation, which is good. And, you know, being, being open to adapting and being able to adapt when it's smart too. Not every change is going to be, you know, going to help us survive. And I do think though, if, if you're willing to explore this, this brings up an important question about human nature, which is why do we have such a hard time changing our minds? And why do we see it as a bad thing? You know, being wrong about your old ideas. Why do we see that as weakness? Why do we, uh, why do we yeah. use the term flip floppers to people who change their minds in, you know, politics? Or why do we have this pressure to have the right answers? Why is that? Why is it a weakness to say, "Hey, I have a better idea"? Yeah, um, you know, and I know that we're going to cover this a lot more in the in the next episode, uh, and and I'm actually. <clears throat> I want to get into it because I think that's been one of my problems. You know, I think about, as you've been talking, a couple of stories that come to mind for me is I think about, you know, I had this, I had this business partner and we really, there's four of us partners and me and him were at the far end of the spectrum. And I was just so sure he was wrong on how we should run the business. I was like, you don't understand the model. You think that we need to pay the expenses this way. It's okay that we're doing it this way. We'll make it up in the end. It's going to be just fine. Everybody else does it that way. And he just couldn't see it. And it was just a real clash. But I had a ton of ego wrapped up in how dare he doubt me kind of thing. I was supposed to be the CEO, right? Uh... And it ended up costing us like $750,000 as a settlement to kick him out of the company. And in wow. the end, our whole energy business went down. And it was a, a large portion of it was this reason that he brought up. And it's been like a really hard pill to swallow, right? Because that was, you know, it was company was millions of dollars that we lost there after 2008. 
Wow. And it's, it like reminds me of this Mike Tyson quote about, I actually looked it up while you were talking. He says, if you're not, if you're not humble, life will visit humility upon you. <laughs> and interesting for that guy i mean like he was bigger than michael jordan in the late 80s he was bigger than michael jordan you know Mm -hmm. and and had had, you know had some humility visited upon him right oh yeah oh yeah Um, and i think like one of the guys that i look up to a lot he he was the ceo of jive do you know that voice over ip phone company out here sold for like 350 million dollars right um brett thompson he to me, he's fascinating about this because he's so good at, at looking at it from a business perspective and saying, I'm not right and you're not right. The data is right. So why don't I make a guess and you make a guess and let's get some data? And yeah. it was just like this fascinating – I mean we all have such opinions and in business you're trying to move so fast and you're trying to get everything done. And then I have the ego of like just the smart guy. So I want my idea to be the right one, whatever. And I just thought it was fascinating as like friction reduction system. And increasing the chance mm. we actually come up with a good idea instead of who's just the better arguer, you know, saying, yes. why don't you make a guess? I'll make a guess and then let's check the data. Anyway, you know, and why, why is it, do you think that ego was wrapped up that how dare you question me? Like, what, what is it about that? You know, cause you wanted your business to succeed. Right. And, and you did think you were right, but it sounds like a portion of why you thought you were right is because it came from you. Right. Or a portion of why you, you were mad is because, or upset, maybe not mad, but upset is because no, no, this I is questioning mad. your intelligence. <laughs> what, what is it about that, that, uh, that brought the ego in? Hmm. I think there's, I think that's a really long answer, but I think that, <laughs> I think that, you know, I was this 28 year old CEO of a private equity fund. I, I hadn't worked at Goldman Sachs after Harvard. I was an art school dropout. We, you know, I'd been to meetings where people asked if my dad was coming. I was like, no, I'm the CEO, you know, like, you know, in many ways I was worried that I wasn't qualified for my job. In many ways I wasn't qualified for my job. And I was trying to hide that from myself and everyone else, you know, and not like, didn't take a second to realize like, oh yeah, everybody's unqualified for their job until they learn it, you know? And and I think personality wise, you know, where I can be kind of a hard charger and his approach was much more like an auditor, like a cop, like a finger pointing, you've mm. done it wrong on top of me trying to protect this image that I was trying to get everybody else to believe in as a band aid for me thinking there was something wrong with me. It's like, if I could get everyone else to think well of me, then I wouldn't have to worry that I didn't think well of me in that way. And here's this guy trying to rip off the band aid in front of everyone. Do you know what I mean? I, do you know how hard I worked? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, there's like this cardboard cutout version of myself. I wanted everybody to believe in. And he's like taking a cheese grater to the edge of it, you know? So <laughs> and that, not that interested math. in the truth, just in preserving my image, you know? Right. Well, that social ma- that's such a good, I mean, that's, that's exactly how ego works, right? Or your ego is trying to protect you. Like it's there, you know, for a reason, trying to protect you. And, and so, you know, we all put on these masks, but you have this inner critic, right? That's telling you you're not qualified, you know, you're not good enough, but you want to be, and you believe in yourself that you can be, and that, you know, it's going to work out, but that nagging, you know, Jiminy Cricket's evil cousin, right. Is, is nagging at you. And then these other things are really like validating that instead of validating you as a person, right. Which is kind of what you're trying to do. Well, and there's this other thing of, he wasn't actually right. And neither was I. What he was saying wasn't actually true if we had been executing our plan like the people that we were following. I would have actually been right had we been doing all these other things. But I wasn't doing those things and wanted to give myself a pass on it. And so Uh. 
I wasn't interested in the deep truth. I, you know, like there was an aspect that I was right on and I was willing to just take the rest of the argument with it because I knew this one part was right. And I wasn't willing to examine, I wasn't willing to examine the rest out of true, full truthfulness. I wanted to like, hope I was right and take it on faith and, you know, be courageous. These like, you know, these things that the business media tells you like great entrepreneurs, they're, they have vision and they're courageous and they, you know, they're gambling, yeah. <laughs> they're gambling right. and they're, they've like survived in spite of risky behavior. I should have been, if I had the intellectual humility to ask myself, and that's my point of like, you know, having made and lost enough money to retire two different times in my twenties, I'm super interested in intellectual, intellectual humility because this third time I'm going to keep it. <laughs> Like I I, I'm doing this out of pain of like, uh, so painful to be that egotistical. I have got to, I can't do it a third time, you know? (laughs) Well, I I think it's really mature of you to, you know, to recognize that and, you know, and recognizing that it's not about you, you know, all these articles that, that talk about how, Oh, the great entrepreneur, right. You know, and then they have all these skills like that makes it about them. Right. And, And sure. We can praise people for, for doing a good job, but when your focus is in part on the you part, right. Rather than the business part. And, you know, then that's where, you know, we make mistakes and we lose money and all of that. So I think there's, you know, the ego thing is, and we'll definitely explore it deeper, but it's such a big factor, you know, into why we don't exercise intellectual humility. I, I think it's, it's interesting. To, oh, sorry. Are you going to say something? Well, no, no. I, I want to hear what you're saying. You know, I know we're, we're kind of winding down before we get ready, ready for episode two, but, but I want to hear where you're going here. So I, I think that in addition to all the things we do to ourselves, there is this social pressure that comes with, with being right or sticking to our way of thinking that, that kind of interferes with intellectual humility. So, you know, if we accept this idea that things will, everything breaks, if we leave it alone, if we don't keep upgrading and evolving and adapting, then it would be a good thing. Anytime someone says they changed their mind or updated their principles or whatever it is. And yet I think that there's two things that happen. One is we, we see people who change often as kind of a betrayal of authenticity. You know, you're authentic if you stay the same. And then there's this other thing that I think is, is sort of misguided, which is that we see people changing as a betrayal of a group's identity. You know, if, if we're part of the same group and I say, hey, I think this, the world is actually this way, or I think this thing that, you know, that we've been saying is wrong, then I'm a traitor. So, you know, you call me a flip-flopper or the other side calls me a flip-flopper. See, look at this example of why this group is wrong. So us being fixed in our ideas ends up getting entangled in our group identity as well. And I think that that's something that, that we need to, to work on as a society. I mean, I think part of what my goal in talking about this and writing about this would be is to help people to appreciate this flip-flopping thing actually as a strength. Not, it's not flip-flopping for you know, expediency to try and win votes, but flipping the way we think about things as, as a sign of strength. And yet right now, I do think that it is often framed as, oh, you're not being real. You're not being authentic or you're betraying your group or you're proving that your group is not authentic or stupid or whatever. So those are things that I think we're up against when we talk about this idea of intellectual humility, that as soon as the rubber hits the road, it's not just, oh, yeah, ever. I think a lot of people could agree. Changing is good. You know, upgrading your thinking, getting smarter. That's great. But then when we actually do it, we run into these other hurdles. Of people are like, oof, well, you know, is Shane actually who I think he is? Is he being authentic or is Shane betraying us 
or you know is uh all of that social pressure i think is a is a big thing that we're going to be up against when we we actually try to put this stuff into into practice i love it makes me think uh jerry Maguire, the tom cruise movie those guys were yeah. all the other agents weren't too stoked when he was outing them saying this is a terrible model we're not taking care of our clients right you know yeah I, i've actually been with graystoke with our investment fund i've actually been really concerned because we're doing things that other finance people don't and we're not just using the channels that they use because i read this this really great book called smart cuts once about don't climb everybody else's ladder invent your own well by definition there's people in the finance community that think we're doing it wrong because we're not doing what everybody else does and we're not waiting our turn you know Mm -hmm. and i think as a human we thrive on acceptance and things like that and so yes you know being willing to be different and potentially wrong can Mm -hmm. feel risky right so and it's you know, it, this is why that discernment thing, you know, becomes so key is if everyone in your industry is saying you're doing it wrong, Jess, the way that you're trying to build this, you know, this company and this fund, they could be right. They could be saying that because they're right. Or they could be saying that because you've betrayed, you know, the the norm, right? And and they're upset about that. And so figuring out where they're right and where they're wrong, being willing to pay attention to them, you know, when they say that and hear out, but then also having the fortitude to say, you know what, it doesn't need to be this way. I'm, I'm going to try this. That's, that's hard. I'll, I mean, give you an, I'll, give, I'll give you an example from like 10 minutes before this call started. <laughs> I'm talking to a guy who I've got a lot of respect for, right? He manages uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was telling him that, you know, what we're going to be paying in commissions, it's and it's low. It's, you know, kind of the same that like Blackstone and Starwood pay, right? And he's like, you might want to double that. If you want a lot of sales reps to want to sell this for you, you might want to mm-hmm. double that. And he's right. Like out of self-interest, reps would rather do that, Right. But right. I'm trying to be like as conservative as possible and I'm trying to have as much money value the shareholder as possible. And, and you know, that's, that's a real tough thing to go like, I'm saying, well, I'm just going to go recruit people from outside the finance industry, you know, recruit commercial real estate agents and stuff like that and, and get them licensed and so they can come sell for us. I'm not going to go to finance guys who expect the higher commission rate. And so mm-hmm. I think I'm going to be fine. But what if he's wrong and I need finance guys and... I'm not paying enough. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, this is, you'll learn, right? Like, I think you will quickly be able to figure that out out and iterate. And I think the key is going to be, if you realize that you were wrong and he's right about that, actually doing the right thing for your business in spite of the fact that he might say, I told you so, or that, or in spite of the fact that you want to be able to say to him, I told you so, right? It, it can't be about that. It has to be about doing the right thing for your shareholders, for your business, making progress and all that. But that's where, you know, this stuff gets tricky, but, you know, framed as a, a strength, even if he says, see, I told you so, you can still to yourself or even in conversation with him say, I'm glad that I found out that I was wrong because now things are going to get better. Like what a person to, to work with, if you can say that, right? Yeah. And, you know, he said to me, like, listen, maybe Blackstone can get away with paying fees that low because they're Blackstone. <laughs> and newsflash, Jess, you're not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right? So anyways, okay. I love it. Uh, Everybody, please tune back into part two. We're going to be talking on episode two more about entropy and why intellectual humility is important in business and life and and taking these steps further. Anything else you want to leave on this episode, Shane? 
So certainly anyone who's listening, go to shanesoto.com slash IH. There will be more goodies and more updates on this topic. Also on that page, you'll see that there's a link to take an intellectual humility self-assessment so that you can actually see how you rank on these four things that we, we mentioned. So you can start to think about the areas in your life where, where you want to pay special attention. Do you want to pay special attention to the ego thing, to the overconfidence thing, to the respect thing? There's Those all break down even further. I will say the last thing that I'd, I'd like to leave people with on this episode is that some of the most successful business people of our time subscribe to this idea of intellectual humility in ways that you might not think. But Jeff Bezos, who currently is the world's richest man, worth $200 billion at last count, I think, probably by the time this airs, it'll be 300. He, he has a, a saying that he likes to say, which is stubborn on vision, flexible on strategy. That's his, his thing for Amazon. In the long term, we have a vision for how we want the world to be and, and the, the kind of business we, we want to have. But we're, we're going to be completely flexible on how we get there. And a lot of leaders have some shade of the opposite of that. You know, wanting to be successful, not caring what it looks like, you know, not caring about the vision, just caring to, you know, that we that we do something so that I appear like a great successful person and also being really stubborn on this first idea that you have, right? Or being really stubborn on how you get to that big vision. You know, maybe having a great vision of how you want to change the world, but then not being willing to change at all how you do it. Those are all, you know, a lack of intellectual humility. But we don't normally think of people like Jeff Bezos as, you know, humble. And this is where intellectual humility and humility, like personal kind of humility, tend to be a little bit different. But world's richest man, his philosophy is you got to be willing to adapt, be flexible on the way that you get to where you want to go. Wanting to go somewhere doesn't mean to change, but how you do it does. So that that's the thing I, I would say is uh, stubborn on vision. So that's okay where you want to go, but flexible on strategy. That is the important part. And, and you know, proof is in the pudding right now, the world's richest man. That's literally his philosophy. Well, I knew this miniseries was a good idea, and you heard it here first, first folks. Shane is promising us all to become the richest person on earth, and I, <laughs> this is the class for that, and I'm just glad you could all tune in. No, but but it's such a good point, and I, I'm actually really excited to hear what, what else you put together on the topic. Everybody, please go to shanesnow.com slash IH, sign up, and tune in for episode two. Talk to you soon.